0: Hey everyone, I'm Michael Davidson, the host of this podcast. Two things are true. I love people and I love ideas. So let me tell you what Alder is. Alder is a community of wildly influential people who are committed to making the world freer and better for future generations. It's about people and ideas. It's about living a legacy, not waiting to leave one. You can really think of Alder as a force that brings together some amazing minds and hearts and talent and helps amplify the impact that they have in the world. So please tune in Listen up and get ready to nerd out with me. On this episode, we did something different. We're joined by Congressman Mike Gallagher. He's a Marine. He's a public servant, and he's an absolute stud. We're also joined by member Juan Zarate. Juan is a foreign policy expert. He's an incredible thought leader. He's also an entrepreneur. He moderated this conversation. And together, they basically have encyclopedic knowledge about foreign affairs, geopolitical trends, and the forces of power at play all across the world. Now, Sadly, the October 7th terror attacks in Israel, it changed the state of play in the Middle East. But their implications were global in scale. So Congress and Gallagher and Juan, they connect the dots from Israel to Ukraine, China, beyond, proving that nothing happens in a vacuum. We came away with the important reminder that deterrence is hard and war is hell. The tension between American isolationism and internationalism, it has real trade-offs for us, for the world at large, and for future generations so this conversation was also joined by other alder members across the country who came ready with some deep thoughtful questions so please listen to this important conversation to understand what's at stake in this complex world of foreign affairs welcome 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 everybody this is great we are going to be we are in for a a real special conversation we all will be some of the most informed individuals on the planet enlightened after talking to juan and Congressman Gallagher. So I'm gonna hand it off to Juan. Now, all of you know of Juan, if you haven't had a chance to meet him, he's one of the most affable, loving people you have ever met. He also has a a deep soul and a big heart and an incredible mind. He truly is a Renaissance man. He truly is a model citizen. And he's like, I tease him sometimes, like James Bond with a pocket protector, because he knows national security and he, he knows how to play it from every single angle. And we met, by the way, Mike, Congressman Gallagher, through Juan, because Congressman Gallagher used to work with Juan. I remember before Congressman Gallagher became Congressman Gallagher, you Juan said, hey, I, I want you to meet my friend, Mike. You guys should get together. And so we hung out. And I'm like, this guy is a stud. He needs to be in Congress. He needs to run for president. Like, what is this? This is incredible. And I think we might have drank a little together over lunch, Mike. And we hit it off really, really well. And I was excited to see about two, three years later, he's become a congressman. And not only that he's become an incredible congressman and as his stature has risen his character has risen with it which is a very rare rare thing to see in public life and in politics so we're grateful to call you a friend mike we're grateful to call you a friend juan and i can't think of a better person to help guide us through a really really difficult conversation such as this so please juan Congressman, take it away.
1: Michael, thank you. It's always an honor to be with my alder brethren and to be with you. And Michael, I got to see you in Tennessee recently with your beautiful family, and that was uh, such a treat. And it's um, incredible to be with Mike Gallagher, who I'm so privileged to call a friend and to say that I've known since he was in high school, the great great high school of modern day in Orange County, for those of you in Orange County. Mike and I are both monarchs. But to echo what uh, Michael Davidson said, Mike Gallagher is a remarkable American patriot, and part of the reason his stature is growing is not just because of his intellect, not just because of his integrity, not just because he's bipartisan and nonpartisan in his approach, but he's a man that we need at a time when there's so much division in our country and a loss of sense of American purpose and identity. And Mike Gallagher, in everything he does, brings purpose and best for the country. And represents the best among us. So I'm I'm privileged that that I can call him my friend. And I think we're privileged to have him to, to be able to speak with us. For those of you who don't know Mike Alger, he was a, a Marine, also a scholar, graduate of Princeton and Georgetown. He doesn't often say that on the campaign trail. He's a representative, obviously, of Green Bay, a great representative in Wisconsin, incredibly well respected. Uh, as you know, he's on the, the Armed Services Committee's as well on the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, that's where they do all the intelligence work and oversight for the House. He as well, and most prominently in in recent months, is the chairman of the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party, which is where all the China-focused policy hearings and discussions are being had on a bipartisan basis. He works very closely with his Democratic colleagues. And he's really a leading light on all things China at this point. I'm going to end, end this session uh, by, by saying Mike needs to run for president at some point, sooner rather than later. And when he does, I'm going to not only f- help fund his uh, campaign, but I'm going to be a part of his team if he'll have me. There's a lot going on in the world. The world feels dangerously unsettled. Uh, there's a shifting landscape of power alliances, proxies. Conflicts emerging in different ways. Obviously, October seventh most prominently, the ongoing war in Ukraine, tensions with China, other other challenges with with terrorist groups. You've got the Taliban operating in Kabul. You've got Al Qaeda uh, surrounding Timbuktu, and of course we've got the challenge in the economic, financial, and technological domains. And so there's a lot to be to be discussed before we get into the weeds on. Hamas, China, TikTok, uh, Russia, role of Congress, can you give us your sense? Because you're you're one of the great strategic thinkers at this point in Congress. What's your view of the world? What's happening strategically? Why does it feel so discombobulated and unsettled right now?
2: Well, first of all, thank you to Michael, for having me. Thank you to the whole Alder Network. And I do feel very indebted to this organization because Michael was willing to meet with me before I was anybody. All I was was like a wannabe Wanzerati. That was literally all I was. An unemployed wannabe Wanserati. And um, we had many drinks together. And uh, in the course of imbibing, you became very helpful in my first campaign. So I appreciate it. And to Wanzerati, the man, the myth, the legend as always we need we haven't hung out in person in a while i miss you my friend
1: i miss you i can't
2: i can't run for president i think i have like too much catholic shame one has to be like shameless to run for president and i think i'm not old enough but we'll see you have to be super old apparently we'll get you i was i did i did a squawk box interview with my ranking member a great guy democrat from chicago and like the who's the the democrat host he he like produces the show billions whatever he asked me like something about trump expecting me to give some like tortured defense of trump and i'm like well i don't think trump should be the nominee for one he's he's too old he'll be as old as biden and biden's so old he's not even a boomer he's a member of the silent generation he's older than the people's republic of china so then the conservative host kernan asked my colleague about Biden and he like was struggling to defend him. It was it was very liberating not to have to defend the boomers and the members of the silent generation. But let's hope we get a new president. I actually think that's part of the answer to your question. What I think what is happening globally is uh, the erosion, if not the collapse of American deterrence. So what does that mean, or like what variables matter most for for deterrence? Uh, I would argue there are two uh, in order of priority. The one is American hard power. And we've had, a readiness crisis for a while. we've we've just underfunded the military in general. We've had a, a tooth to tail ratio that's out of whack where the amount of money we're actually spending to procure weapons and to send to the pointy end of the spear is outweighed by the amount of money that we're spending on personnel costs in general or bureaucratic costs in general. So if you did an apples to apples real comparison of the Reagan buildup to the Obama drawdown, we were still spending more money in the Obama drawdown. Even though we had, you know, half as many naval ships, a smaller force, et cetera, it's because the military is kind of a microcosm of the rest of society, in that healthcare and personnel costs, as well as general sort of like regulatory costs, are crowding out everything. I think it's fair to say because of pressure in both parties, too, there's been a, a desire to kind of after 20 years of costly and and you could say inconclusive wars in the Middle East, the desire to return home, there's an isolationist sentiment that creeps up from time to time, and um, it's gotten very strong in both parties. And I think as a result, we just simply haven't invested in hard power. And specifically, and I think what the war in Ukraine has re- revealed, when it comes to our critical munitions, our long-range precision fires, the type of things that can, you know, blow up a Russian tank or sink a Chinese ship, or the munitions that go into an Iron Dome missile battery to help Israel defend itself from terrorists, we just we've put those on minimum sustaining rates of production. For decades, they've been the budget for those have been cannibalized by sexier platforms, and as a result, we we're, we're just our entire defense industrial base is incredibly brittle, and we haven't yet served hard power to the Indo-Pacific. We're kind of in the midst of our third failed pivot to the Pacific. I can quibble with that language because I don't think a superpower has the luxury of neatly pivoting away from one region to the other. But I would say the second variable is, is presidential leadership. And I sort of joked about Biden's age, but I my own view is Biden is not a strong president. I'm not trying to be overly critical. I'm not sure his judgment on foreign policy is particularly good. I think the administration started off very strong in terms of carrying on what I would say is a more realistic approach. approach. Approach to China. And over the past year and a half, it has instead decided to elevate the more dovish wing of the administration led by John Kerry and Janet Yellen at the expense of some of the people I really admire, like Eli Ratner and some members of the National Security Council, and has revived diplomatic and economic engagement with China in the hopes that we can take down the temperature. Nothing will roil the global economy and that would improve their reelection prospects, you saw this sort of play out in in San Francisco over the past few days. And I really think it misunderstands the nature of the regime we're dealing with in China, a Marxist-Leninist regime where one person is increasingly in charge of everything. And the sort of paradox of Marxist-Leninist regimes is that they grow more aggressive the more you try to accommodate them. So I think the lack of sort of sound presidential judgment, and I'm not here to like try and pretend Trump was Bismarck or Kissinger is the wrong analogy, since we're talking about China, but you get my point on the world stage. I could argue we haven't had a president who truly prioritized American hard power and was willing to prioritize the military over the past two administrations. And that's really what it takes when you're dealing with a massive bureaucracy. You need a president willing to empower a secretary of defense and his entire national security bureaucracy in order to get anything done. So that's kind of what I think are the two big things going on in, in simplest terms, and I'm, I'm happy to drill down into anything else.
1: Mike, I want to come back, obviously, on China, which has been a huge area of focus and and sort of a, the, the main strategic issue at play. But drawing to current events, October 7th, a strategic shock from Hamas upsetting the balance in the region. Jake Sullivan had said in September, this is the most peaceful time we've seen in the region. You know, never quite say that. You always have to knock on wood, I think. And... We are now facing and witnessing a war in the Middle East where we're backing Israel and it's not quite clear how this all ends. And so how do you see this playing out? What's the U.S. role? What are the dangers unfolding in your mind?
2: Well, first of all, foreign affairs has never allowed me to edit my piece after it's been published. If geopolitical events prove it to be wrong. So do I have to be a Democrat to get that? Courtesy extended to me because <laughs> he not only said it, he wrote it in a piece, which that piece also is littered with interesting things on China that we can we can talk about. But when you're a national security advisor, Juan, you can hopefully they'll extend you the same. Yeah, the same maybe. Privilege. I, I doubt um, it. Yeah, I think I'm I'm. it's hard for me to talk about this dispassionately because I am um, my wife just dropped off the baby monitor. So yesterday morning, I watched the 50 minute compilation that the Israeli embassy is screening with just horrific videos taken from phones of the victims, phones of terrorists, social media accounts, CCTV footage, and it's one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. And I mean everyone in the in the audience was just like weeping. And I do think we we've seen just a, an unadulterated display of evil on the world stage and I, I do think we have to we have to back Israel as it attempts to, dismantle Hamas, completely eliminate its ability to pose a military threat to Israel, and in the process, reestablish some semblance of deterrence in the north with respect to Hezbollah. Those are sort of the the interim goals. How it ends, that's a harder question for me to answer. I'm not sure there's any appetite, even in the hawkish end of the Knesset, to occupy Gaza for an extended period of time. Uh, That would get very very messy, very quickly. And and I, I don't know beyond sort of that immediate goal of destroying Hamas, deterring Hezbollah, where we go after that. And we're starting to ask those questions and hoping to get a better better insight from the intelligence community. If you sort of zoom out to the regional picture, as Juan, you know better than anybody. I mean, again, I'm, I'm seriously not trying to take cheap shots at the administration, but my own view is that it is the unwillingness to change course with respect to Iran, that is that creates chaos throughout the region. The fact that we're going to provide another $10 billion to Iran, even after Iran's proxies have just launched this attack against Israel, makes no sense to me. Uh, Iran is the long pole in the tent in the Middle East. It's the thing that's drawing the Israelis closer together with the Sunni Arab Gulf states. And prior to this incident, neither Saudi Arabia nor Jordan nor any Gulf country was trying to like inject the peace process or into their relationship with Israel or to Palestinianize those discussions, in part because they wanted to have some sort of security understanding in order to prevent Iran from spreading its influence throughout the region, as well as develop economic opportunities. Now, this has put a massive wrench into that, obviously, and I don't think we're going to be able to revive the Israeli-Saudi rapprochement anytime soon. But I guess my only point is that, Until we have a more coherent policy with respect to Iran and a policy of applying a maximum pressure to Iran, I really think it's going to be hard to restore stability to the region and this thing could escalate and we could find ourselves, we could find American troops in in conflict. I mean, I guess in some sense they already are. We're responding to attacks on our troops from Iranian proxies and initially we were striking ammo supplies and things like that, but we've striked a few actual human targets now. What else on the Middle East, Juan? I feel like, you know, this is maybe an example of what I alluded to before. It's this idea that like we can get out of the Middle East, you know, it's not our problem anymore. And then we can just focus on the Indo-Pacific. The problem is the Middle East is like Godfather three every time you try to get out. It pulls you right back in, so we just can't take our eye off the ball. I'm trying to think of any, have any other thoughts on? Um, I said before, just start right now in Congress, maybe just a political observation. We passed a, a bill to support Israel. However, it was not the savviest move in that it was a fourteen billion dollar bill that had to find an offset. Uh, the offset in this case was sort of uh, IRS funding, which is fine; it's not objectionable to me as a conservative. But as a political matter, that didn't put any pressure on Chuck Schumer. He was able to easily ignore it, and it now increases the likelihood that the Senate will send back to us an omnibus bill that or a, a big supplemental that has Ukraine linked together with Israel and Taiwan money, which will get a little bit messier. We should have just sent a clean bill unoffset, supporting Israel, giving it the resources it needs going forward. You know the tragedy too i'll I'll shut up after this. I've spent my whole adult life, and prior to pretending that I knew something about China, I was uh, you know I was a Middle East guy. I spoke the language and was a wannabe Arabist, I guess you could say. And it, it wasn't really like a, I mean, the two state solution was the goal towards which everybody was striving. I mean, that, I'm sure that was true in the Bush 43 administration. It was not objectionable when I was a Hill staffer as as early as 2015. Now though on paper, we might say that's the goal. It's just hard for me to see that happening anytime soon because the security situation has deteriorated so much. And I don't know where that leaves you. I, I really don't. So that's an unsatisfying answer to your question, Juan.
1: No, it's a great answer. And just if I can add a footnote, I think October seventh is more of a strategic shift than most people realize, hmm. in part because of, of exactly what you described, which is some of the strategic shifts that we were we were seeing with the Abraham Accords with Israel as sort of a seen as a as an emerging normalized power, technology power, et cetera the movement toward a two-state solution at some point, all of that is upset. And I don't know when that gets reset. And the other thing is there's going to be longevity to this conflict. I don't think this gets sort of hermetically sealed once once Gaza's kind of dealt with, uh, whatever that means, with all its horrors. Israel is going to have to contend with the Iranian element here. And I think whether via proxy or otherwise, that's going to that's going to affect the Middle East. And so Anyways, I, I think it's a dramatic shift, not just in Israel, but but regionally, and even for us to a certain extent. You mentioned Ukraine. Let's let's turn to that because that's huge, obviously as well. How would you see kind of Western staying power in supporting Ukraine? How do you see sort of the state of the the conflict? How are the Russians viewing us? You know, you you have a a privileged perch from which to view all this. What's your sense of what's happening in Ukraine?
2: Well, I I'll just start with the the harsh reality in Congress or in the Republican caucus in Congress. I think it's getting it's getting increasingly hard to provide even targeted lethal assistance to Ukraine. And I'm one who has been in support of that from the start and I'll continue to support it. That doesn't mean, you know, hey, any number that Zelensky names, I'm for that. No, obviously that's not the way we operate, right? But and any Assistance needs to be paired with robust oversight and inspector general provisions and all that. And yes, we want to encourage Europeans to step up. Got it. It's getting harder, though, I think. And I've really tried to understand this for a few reasons. One is the overall just sort of isolationist wing of the Republican Party, which is not new, by the way. Like it goes back to the late 40s, early 50s, if not beyond that. You know, but we rarely actually nominate isolationist people to be our standard bearer. We did so. Probably truly for the first time in 19 or the last time in 1936 with the great Alf Landon. If Alf Landon was on your bingo card for this this talk, you can drink now. That's one thing I think, just because of the you know Ukraine is bound up in the anger over the Trump impeachments and like there's a Hunter Biden angle there, so it just gets messy. In people's minds, and then just sort of legacy related to, I guess, point one of of maybe our wars in the Middle East. People are just loath to get involved anywhere. So, due to a combination of those factors, as well as sort of like a, the reflection, reflexive opposition to by the Republican Party to the President, like it's getting harder and harder to make the case for Ukraine. I'm not saying any of those are great reasons. That just is what it is. So, how do we fix that going forward? In my mind, two things. One. As an argument like we have to do a better job of teasing out the connections between russia and china because china is a threat that i think every member of the republican party agrees is our foremost national security challenge and to the extent we can get people to understand that putin is xi's junior partner in a new cold war that they've been waging against the west for quite some time and the iranians are part of what increasingly looks like a proper Axis arrayed against our interests and those of our allies i think we can better make the argument for targeted clinical lethal support to ukraine and oh, by the way ask any of our allies in asia if they care about what's happening in ukraine they do very much so they see the outcome as connected to the future of deterrence in the indo-pacific and i think we we don't do ourselves any favors if we try and sort of segment these issues we have to view I mean we have to view these as connected. The other I guess the other thing that makes it hard is my sense is the you know there's been limited success in the counteroffensive the it's sort of bogged down into a stalemate. I think the more the longer this goes on it favors the Russians and it's going to require a lot of endurance on the part of the Ukrainians and and on the part of their backers which I'm just I just worry we don't have particularly in an election year. Beyond that one, sorry, I, I'm trying not to be a downer. No, 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 that, that,
1: no, no Well, I'm asking you downer kinds of questions, but you're, you're always thoughtful and always thinking about what the solution is.
2: So if I were gonna try and make the case to my, my Republican colleagues who are skeptical, I would say, okay, yeah, robust oversight provisions, no blank check, you, nobody gets a blank check, got it. But then I'd say like, we have a huge opportunity right now. As I alluded to before, Ukraine has not created, it has revealed the insufficiency of our stockpiles of critical munitions, right? Everything from 155 rounds to javelins, to stingers, to things that are more relevant in the Pacific, like harpoon, long-range anti-ship missile, JASM, JATAM, naval strike missile, the list goes on and on. There's like 15 things that we just need a lot of because in modern war, you expend these munitions very rapidly and you risk going Winchester or firing all of them very quickly. So we now have an opportunity with sustained multi-year funding for critical munitions that are not only relevant in Ukraine they're relevant in Israel they're relevant in Taiwan to rebuild America's arsenal of deterrence and oh by the way in the process we can fix our broken foreign military sales system so that we aren't we don't have backlogs like decades long backlogs of systems that that countries like Taiwan have purchased in 2015 that are not going to be delivered until 2027 and if we want not only to help Ukraine defend itself from Russian aggression, but also prevent Ukraine's present from becoming Taiwan's future, we need to move to maximum production rates of all these systems. That's that's the opportunity we have. And it's actually not that big a number, right? You're talking about, let's say, $15 billion a year with certainty over the course of the five-year defense plan. Like That's nothing in the grand scheme of things. The Pentagon... Every year for the last decade has just allowed $10 billion to disappear. Money that's appropriated, it doesn't get spent, and then it goes back to the Treasury. It sits there for five years and then it goes and then it like it goes back. It sits in abeyance for five years and it disappears. That we've lost about $120 billion of defense money because of broken spending processes. Like we could just give the Pentagon the authority to repurpose that money and spend it on critical munitions. And we would be doing ourselves and our allies a massive favor.
1: And oh, by the way, most of that is getting spent in the U.S. Actually, with manufacturing. Exactly, um, it's a huge opportunity. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, a time when we need to modernize anyway. Two other things: just think about Mike. One is a lot of discussion. Phil Zelico and others have written about the use of frozen assets, or at least even interest off of some of those assets, to be able to fund uh, Ukraine and even collateralize that for other investments. And and in addition. We're involved in this on the private sector side, some elements of reconstruction. There's a lot of reconstruction work, planning, budgeting happening in Ukraine. Uh, American companies need to be in there. There's, there's capital for it from different parts of the world. Chinese are getting in there. There's rare earth minerals. There's other interesting things in Ukraine. So there's some really interesting opportunities as well. You don't want to be mercenary in that regard, but there's something really uh, important so that you're not just having to tax American you know, taxpayers. To to fund the Ukrainian government.
2: Juan, let me ask you, that seems so obvious to me. Like the principle is Russia should pay for the war that it started and the destruction it caused. Why hasn't why do you think the Biden administration hasn't seized on that? It's such an attractive idea. Two things. There's there's
1: a reticence to use frozen central bank assets or reserves in part because it hasn't really been done before. And those reserves are considered to be in the international financial system to a certain degree sacrosanct, right? So Secretary Yellen is not for that, so it's why you haven't seen it out of the U.S. government. In Europe, there is concern around the legality of that. It would have to be, under international legal principles, considered a countermeasure for the aggression. They haven't gone through the legal permutations to to have that happen, Uh, but that's why there's a bunch of lawyers and others working on different ways of thinking about the use of those assets, even if you don't take the principle, maybe even the interest, and beginning to use that to pay and that's to the tune of billions of dollars. That's that's a lot of money. Interesting, yeah.
2: Well, we that's why we have lawyers like you to yeah. deal with the international legal uh, we, precedent.
1: I wish I were a good lawyer. Uh, we can talk about that later. But real quickly, and then we'll go to questions, and a, a number of them have piled up in the chat on China.
2: A lot of talk about decoupling, de-risking. You said and, that like Trump, by the way. China. China, China, China.
1: Not intentional, but anyway, what what are we what are we seeing? With, I know you've been arguing for a more aggressive sort of decoupling. So a lot of questions as to what that looks like, even if we can do that. Uh, and this issue of even, you know, social media that's controlled by China, TikTok, what to do with TikTok. You've had a lot to say about that. You're a leading voice on it. What, what's your opinion about dealing with China? How do we disentangle and how do you deal with TikTok?
2: Well, my first point would be that some form of what I call selective decoupling, and I know we're having this debate about decoupling versus de-risking versus diversifying. And there's been some really great work by a very smart economist like Muhammad al-Aryan to suggest that one cannot de-risk and diversify without inevitably decoupling. But I think some form of selective decoupling is going to continue because the CCP is decoupling from us they in key areas they're trying to inure themselves against the possibility of a conflict with america and what that would mean for us now this this can take a form of just trying to to control the commanding heights of critical technology or it could take the form of a more long-term project which Juan would know better than anyone else which is an attempt to de-dollarize the global economy right But they are trying to decouple in key areas from us. What is made in China 2025 but a a selective decoupling? So we can either ignore that or we can try and shape the outcome of this in a way that advantages us and the free world as opposed to the communists in China. It is very difficult to draw the line for selective decoupling, but I think we've already chosen to try and spend money to reduce our dependency on Asia for the production of semiconductors. I'm skeptical that this particular Experiment is going to work. I'm happy to talk about why, but at least the goal is one I share. I think we should also consider an effort to onshore or nearshore the production of advanced pharmaceutical ingredients, as well as simplify our regulatory process so that we can mine and process critical minerals here in America. We really only have one company that does it, MP Materials, because we've effectively made it illegal to mine and process these materials in America. That's something that's solvable. And there's probably four other things where we agree this is a good start, where we have an unacceptable dependency on China. We should seek to reduce that dependency and thereby reclaim some semblance of economic sovereignty. Beyond that, I do think decoupling means that we should cut off the flow of US capital to Chinese military companies, as well as technology companies that are building things designed to perfect an Orwellian surveillance state and abet a genocide in Xinjiang, or building things designed to kill Americans in a future conflict. You might rejoin that, well, foreign investment in China is already down immensely post COVID and in light of everything stupid that Xi Jinping's been doing to the business community. Well, never a better time than to put in place clear guardrails on the outflow of US capital to China so that we are not funding our own destruction. And the third thing is is what you mentioned involves data and cross-border data flows. And it really finds its most acute expression when it comes to TikTok. There is the problem of social media in general, and then there is the peculiar problem of TikTok, which is of course owned by ByteDance, and ByteDance is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. And given that TikTok is not just an app where people post silly dance videos, it is increasingly a news source for young Americans. I think it would be a mistake to allow an app that's effectively controlled by the CCP to be the dominant news platform or media platform in America. The risk is not just that they can track your location or what other websites you're visiting, like, which is a risk. It, it's that they can control what information you get, what you think is true and isn't, and, and thus mess with all sorts of things here domestically. I mean, just look at all the nonsense we've seen in the past few days with, with people on TikTok praising Bidlan's letter to America. My gosh! I mean, like, what are what are we even talking about? I've had like highly progressive colleagues call me in the last twenty four hours, being like, "We need to do a hearing on this asap." Like, this is ridiculous. It is bound up is in this bigger issue of how do you regulate cross border data flows? We don't really have any process for that. We have something called the ICTS process. It's very new. Nobody really knows how it's working at present. The former Prime Minister of Japan Shinzo Abe laid out a pretty good vision that he called data free flow with trust. So. I think this kind of gets to the broader principle at play with all of this, and I'll shut up after this, which is as we seek to decouple in key areas from China or minimize our risk or at least accurately assess the risk of doing business in China to take off the golden blindfolds, the only way that works, given how economically interdependent we are with China, given that we are conjoined twins with China in so many areas, is if we simultaneously assume risk in other parts of the world and deepen our economic and technological partnerships with not only countries that we trust, like Australia and the UK. And by the way, there are significant barriers, even with those countries to doing business as we're finding out as we we try to implement the AUKUS arrangement, but countries that have unique technological superpowers like Japan, South Korea, and then countries that don't fit neatly into our concept of the free world, like Vietnam and Indonesia and others. It's, It's sort of that balancing act of selectively decouple, well, having a proactive agenda in other areas. And there, both parties are deficient. Neither party wants to even talk about trade. There's no proactive trade agenda. The Biden administration just gutted what was already the hollow shell of IPEF. And we have that's a huge gap in our overall grand strategy vis-a-vis China.
1: God almighty, that's the most comprehensive and fascinating view on, on China I've heard in, in like five minutes. Wow, that's incredible, Mike. The, the one thing I would, I would just echo what you said at the end there, I think we have to think very differently about our alliances in that regard and, and exactly what you said, and in particular with the exquisite technologies and supply chains that we need and the resources. And we have to think differently about elements of positive economic power and the power of investment, right? And so we think a lot about sanctions and export controls and investment security inbound, now outbound what we haven't quite figured out is how we leverage the power of american capital japanese capital australian capital european capital to actually challenge in a positive way where we need to strategically and i think whether that's investments in particular resources or new technologies or joint ventures and you know and thinking differently about how to champion our interests when it may not be an American label or a flag on the company or the investor, right? And so, I think can I can
2: make one sort of comment off that? I totally agree with that. By the way, this is going to sound very unsophisticated. Someone said, "How about India?" Yeah, I mean, India is our most important long-term partner. There's no way to beat China in this competition without a much closer relationship with India. I don't think that w- like anytime soon that's going to become a formal alliance, but. I think there are a lot of ways where we can deepen that relationship. Though there are significant challenges to doing business in India. And a lot of times people who make the case for decoupling are like, well, let's go to India. Well, it's not quite that simple, right? I mean, you know, you can't just like take the helicopter, pick up the Foxconn plants in China, drop them in India. It's not really how it works. But I think about a lot of this when it comes to, like we're having this debate about AI, right? Like, well, okay, what's the right mix of guardrails, and but we can't pause or slow down, otherwise China will beat us. I don't know if I have the answer to that but like I just feel strongly that if 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 our framework for regulation and innovation aligns almost identically with other free world allies and we pool our resources and capital our humans and our money we're unbeatable right like and start and build it out as concentric circles like the beating heart of the free world is probably AUKUS right now it's it's us Australia and the UK then it's the rest of the five eyes allies then it's, I don't know, then you add sort of Japan and, and other countries, then it's NATO, but you just start to build out these concentric circles where everybody is on the same page and capital and humans can seamlessly move and we can co-invest. That's when things get really exciting. I love it. I love it.
1: Michael Davidson, I'm going to turn back to you to, to moderate. I think we've captured some of the questions, in but there's there's a lot more that you're getting, I know, directly. Do you want to moderate the next part here?
0: Yes, I will. Let me go first to Mani. Could you discuss the SHIP Act? Would it be in controlling Iran selling its oil and helping sanctions? Also, are you afraid of MBS and Iran selling their oil in Wuhan versus the dollar?
1: For the the knowledge of everybody, what Iran is doing to get over the sanctions is putting their oil and they're taking it to Malaysia. And in, in Malaysia, they're taking their oil and putting it in Malaysia oil and selling it that way. And it's to getting around the sanctions that were put on them. So, you know, the question is, how do we sanction Iran more and more so we can control the money that's going into them? And that's how the, every time we've put any sanctions on them, they've gone around it.
2: The, the idea of like sanctioning Iranian oil shipments that are going to China is is a very attractive one to me. Juan probably would have a better view of whether and how they are in violation. I mean, basically, we've had non-enforcement of sanctions for the past two and a half years. And even when like when we waive $10 billion, like it seems we're going to do, that sort of undercounts the amount of money that we are allowing Iran to get in certain ways. I think that also explains a lot of China's interest in a, a bigger role in the region. I mean, they signed this 25 or 30-year economic partnership with Iran about a year ago. Obviously, they have massive energy needs. And I think they've been the biggest purchaser of Iranian oil for at least the last two years, and they have an interest in just having sources of hydrocarbons that they can control. So it's a convenient marriage. And, and yet another reason why I sort of see the the kind of like the Iran, China, Russia challenges as interlinked. I did have, there was this comment, Paul Jago may have made it in his speech he gave last week, where I think in the Trump administration, they were trying to interdict an Iranian oil shipment, and they simply didn't have like a naval asset capable of doing it. And the comment that the Trump official had made to Paul Dugo at the time was that, you know, this is not Reagan's Navy. Like, there are some instances where we just don't have the ability to deal with these things. But I'll pause there and let Juan comment.
1: No, I think you you handled it well, Mike. I think, Moni, on the ship and transshipment side, there's been a lot of attempted focus on what not just North, uh, not just Iran does, but North Korea and others do to evade sanctions with the way they, they, uh, their, their maritime interests and, and third countries and third parties. So I think you have to continue to, in many ways, weed the garden when it comes to sanctions. And, and to the extent that you're not enforcing sanctions, they grow weaker and weaker. So you've got to do that. The, the other thing, and it's related to your question about the wand and the, the use and the alternative to the dollar and oil trades and otherwise, it's, it's important to watch what the collection of authoritarian countries and malign forces are trying to do Collectively to displace the dollar, and so it's with not just other alternate trade currencies, but alternate trade platforms and payment platforms. China, for example, has a central bank digital currency, the digital yuan, the ECNY, that they're using to try to promote trade and further you know ties and dependence on China, and in particular, in this case, their digital currency, which they control, they see, and they operate, and so. That is at play. And with the recent BRICS expansion out of the South Africa conference, you have an alliance of of different economies, some that are adversarial to the, US, to the US, others that aren't, but that are starting to do more business in the ways that China wants. And that's challenging to the US longer term.
2: By the way, kind of like fair to say, our energy policy is a massive problem and seems like a huge gift to Xi Jinping the war on domestic production. This should be like a massive relative advantage we have compared to China, given our energy resources and their energy needs. But we seem content on screwing it up or expediting or forcing a transition to electric vehicles that have batteries and subcomponent parts that are made in China and are requiring us to use Inflation Reduction Act dollars to bring Chinese battery companies here to America to build plants with Ford (laughs) and Michigan. So just a little side note there.
1: Mike, just when re- you saying that reminds me, and the Germans now realize it, how uh, foolish it was to declare their lack of uh, reliance on nuclear energy at a time of growing reliance on Russia and Russian oil and gas, right? So sort of a self, self-imposed wound there.
2: When Juan is national security advisor or DNI or whatever, he's going to figure out a way to have a nuclear microreactor boom in America so we can dominate that technology.
1: There are those working on that as we speak. All
2: right, Chad, go for it.
3: Well, yeah. Uh, as a first of all, Chairman Gallagher, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. And uh, as a Texan, I couldn't agree more with your comments on the energy policy. Stop the the war on production, and I'm I'm in the Gallagher for President camp. So count, count on my support when that day comes. But you, what you said is so accurate about we've had peace through strength. It's been proven. In the post-war period, that when we had collected defense with clearly stated policies of attribution and retribution, deterrence worked. And unfortunately, when we've been unclear about that, or like in Syria, where we drew a red line and didn't follow it up, that that really damaged our credibility in the Middle East. Uh, given your military experience and and the critical national national security committees that you serve on, now that we've moved two carrier groups supposedly into the Med to provide deterrence against Hezbollah. Offensive. Given that it's without have strategic ambiguity, would number one, what military options would you support in striking back in the event of an Hezbollah attack? And two, do you think it's beneficial to go ahead and signal state publicly if the Biden administration would be clear about what retribution would be involved? In? It doesn't have to be down to the detail, the last bill, but the general scope and magnitude of the retribution.
2: Yeah, great question. Quick comment on deterrence, which is very hard. I'm not trying to minimize the difficulty, but if deterrence is hard, war is hell. So like a day of deterrence, you know, or a year of deterrence is worth a day of warfare. And if you look at sort of like in the past, what it's taken to do serious deterrence, like take the Taiwan Strait, we've had had three crises before this. I mean, even when China was a relatively pedestrian military we had to stage the biggest show of American military power in the mid nineties to defuse a crisis. In the fifties, the, the, where we had two Taiwan Strait crises. I mean, Eisenhower, who everybody respected and feared at the time, he had to get an advanced authorization for the of military force from Congress. He deployed Matador cruise missiles onto Taiwan itself. He moved all sorts of assets. So the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, when it comes, will take just as much, if not more intestinal fortitude from the president who needs options. He's just gonna need a whole bunch of military options that he doesn't have right now. When it comes to Iran right now- By the way, Koshman,
3: producing 1.2 subs a year is not gonna provide the president with those options. No, you need at
2: least 2.5 to fulfill our own requirements Mm -hmm. as well as have a hope of fulfilling AUKUS requirements. And we're just not there. I mean, it's just our, our shipbuilding, our enterprises, has so much difficulty. And a lot of this is just because there's no consistent demand signal from the Navy, from the Pentagon. Like we have all these shipbuilding plans that don't mean anything. Like they overlap. They don't talk to each other. Some of them are just choose your own adventure, like a menu of different options. It's just (laughs) ridiculous. So like if you're a shipbuilder, I have a shipbuilder in my district, you're just trying to figure out what's on the horizon. You can't. With Iran, you know, I'm not sure we need to specify, okay, if you do X, we will do Y, but it just needs to be I do think like the untouchables principle applies, right? If they pull a knife, we yeah. we'll pull a you gun. Pull up, like yeah. if they put one of ours in the hospital, we'll put one of theirs in the morgue. I, I know it sounds a little bit like that's kind of how I think the Middle East works most mm-hmm. of the time. Sorry, Juan's probably shaking his head because I sound unsophisticated. <laughs> but that would be the general vibe I would try to convey.
0: I have a couple questions for you, Congressman, because I know you, you got to go in a couple minutes. One is, why hasn't Hezbollah attacked? That's one question. There was an idea that they were going to attack sooner, so if you could elaborate on that. And then secondly, using your both your background and experience as a Marine and also now being in policy, how would you describe what needs to happen on the ground right now in Gaza? And part of the question is just so we understand it, because I don't think it doesn't feel like the media is doing it justice. And then when you hear sort of the social media sound system, the moral relativism is off the charts. And and the expectation that Israel cannot vigorously defend itself strikes me as just astonishing. If Hitler was holding up, you know, holding up any number of places in a, in a city, we would go in and take it. That was what we had to do. And so there's a level of naivety about conflict and war, which is unfortunate, but in some level understandable. And so from your point of view, given as a Marine and then policymaker, what should we understand
2: about what's going on on the ground and then Hezbollah? Well, I'll start with Hezbollah. The only reason I can think that they haven't attacked, because I, I I guess, reveal myself as a bad national security professional in that I sort of expected they would get more engaged than they have thus far, is that they still don't want to, they don't want to bring us into the conflict in a way we might have to if they started really attacking Israel from the north. And by the way, like this problem of human shields, which Israel's is having to deal with in Gaza, that problem is way worse, like in the north with Hezbollah. There, and because the rockets are far more sophisticated. They're buried under civilian populated areas. I mean, it's like there aren't enough iron dome systems in the world that can protect you against that threat. And it would put Israel in the horns of a dilemma. But I do think there has to be some fear still among Hezbollah and perhaps by extension, Iran, that we would be forced to get more decisively engaged, which should tell us that like we we shouldn't self deter. I feel like we always talk ourselves that like it's our fear of provocation that limits our options. But like the fear of provocation itself becomes provocative because our enemies figure they can get away with a bunch of stuff. Or maybe they're discontent with other proxies to kind of occasionally shoot at Americans in other parts of the region. Your second question was sort of why the moral relativism in general or- Well, I, not, I mean, if you have a, a point of view about
0: it, I would like that, yeah. but just more so give us real talk about what should be expected to on the ground, what is necessary and why. So,
2: you know, I keep thinking back to like some of the worst fighting in Mosul when, I mean, that was largely Iraqi, Iraqi troops with with our support that were going house to house in houses that were booby-trapped. I mean, that was like the worst urban combat since you'd have to go back to way city in 1968 to find something like that. Horrific in terms of just the dilemma that it put every Lance corporal Sergeant, second Lieutenant in going house to house. And I haven't seen the operation unfold with my own eyes in Gaza, but they have to be confronting something that, that harrowing. So it's just absolutely going to be brutal, but Hamas has to be destroyed. There's no, it has to be. I'm not saying that means you level blocks in Gaza, let alone Gaza itself. I, I, Israel is, has to go to great lengths to minimize civilian casualties as we do. And it's never perfect because it's warfare, but this isn't like a murderous, genocidal death cult of an organization that cannot be allowed to exist. So it means there's gonna be a, a lot of people that die on both sides of the conflict. And that's horrific. I wish it weren't the case, but Hamas is to blame for that sad reality. And I I hate to put it in that stark of terms. And again, I, I remain a little bit emotional after what I saw yesterday. In some ways, I actually think, you know, it's not something you'd watch with your kids, but it's something most Americans should, should see. It's just so horrific.
0: Whatever it is you want us to see and learn and pay attention to, Mike, if you could please uh, send it over to me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And with that, I know you have to go. And if, Juan, if you have any closing comments, we would love for you to make them. But uh, both of you, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for putting in the time. I think it's so important that we're informed and steady in these times. Thank you, Michael. I could just say real
1: quickly we now witness yet again why Michael Gallagher is a great leader, somebody we need, regardless of your politics. He's such a, a brilliant American patriot. And I just want to thank him for his service. And to all of you in Alder, this is why Alder matters, right? How we as citizens interact with each other, with our families, how we educate ourselves, how we think about our role as citizens is critical. It's always why Alder and what Michael Davidson tried to do is so important to our fundamental power and security in the country. It goes back to the the Tocqueville sense of American uniqueness and power, which is, the grassroots, what we do in civil society, what we do in our neighborhoods, what we do with our families, that matters fundamentally to who we are. So let's not forget that. It's not just what happens in Congress, it happens on our uh, corners and in our homes as well. So thank you. dorati okay. for president.
0: Thank you all of all you. here we go. <laughs> I'll talk to y'all later, thank you. Juan said it best, conversations like this are why Alder matters. This institution brings together incredible leaders with outsized influence to educate themselves and each of us to think about our role as citizens and do it better. That always matters and it's important to our nation's power and our nation's security and our nation's general welfare. So thank you so much for joining us. Please like, share, subscribe to get more incredible insights. We appreciate you.